Hello and welcome to season two of Asia Inscripted. I'm Vivian Su, and I'm Isabel Beleza, and this is U.S. Asia Institute's podcast series, where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers with firsthand knowledge of Asia. Today, Vivian and I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Meredith Weiss, professor and chair of political science at the State University of New York, Albany. Professor Weiss's research is in the field of comparative politics, focusing on Southeast Asia, and her current projects include research on democratic representation and political elites in Southeast Asia, and a monograph on Malaysian socio-political development. Professor Weiss is a former chair of the Southeast Asia Council of the Association for Asian Studies, and currently holds positions at multiple political science associations. She has given briefings for the U.S. Trade Representative and State Department, and has served as a State Department lecturer in Malaysia. In the following clips, Professor Weiss speaks about the recent political crisis in Malaysia. Please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. The episode begins with Professor Weiss introducing herself and how she became involved in Southeast Asian studies. I started studying Malaysia as an undergraduate. I took a course. I was at Rice University, and the class was on Southeast Asian politics. I knew nothing about Southeast Asia, but it was supposed to be a good class. I took it. I ended up uh, taking all the classes that Professor Fred Vondermaden offered and writing an honors thesis with him and then applying for grants to go to Southeast Asia after college, as well as applying for grad school to study Southeast Asian politics. So I was pretty much all in from fairly early on. So the things that really drew me to Malaysia specifically, rather than Southeast Asia broadly, were really the elements that suggested the politics might be particularly dynamic there. So at the time, a book had recently come out while I was in college on social movements in Malaysia, which was then a really newly emerging field of study. And that book called Fragmented Visions, edited by Francis Lowe and Joel Kahn, really piqued my interest in studying, especially the dimensions of racial and ethnic politics, class divisions of gender divisions, and so forth, as they relate to political mobilization and political engagement and empowerment. And the rest is history. I've been studying Southeast Asia since then. I went off to Singapore after graduation on a Fulbright. And then after that, went on to graduate school at Yale to work on Southeast Asia. And now am a professor of political science focused on Southeast Asian politics at the State University of New York at Albany. So yeah, let's jump straight into um, you know today's topic. And as an expert on Malaysia, it would be great for for you to give our listeners a brief background on uh, Malaysia. So to start off, can you talk a little bit about Malaysia's geography, where it's located, and what's really significant about its, its location? So Southeast Asia is loosely defined as the area of the world between China and India, and then across an ocean, Australia. Um, and we normally divide it into two halves. So there's mainland Southeast Asia and island or insular Southeast Asia. Malaysia is part of insular Southeast Asia, as opposed to mainland is Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Burma, so forth. So it's in a region that has been a crossroads for millennia at this point. Uh, you have, for instance, the Cape Malays who sailed off to Southern Africa long, long, long ago. There's a you know, long history, hundreds of years of colonialism from Europe in this part of Southeast Asia, the Portuguese, the Dutch, uh, in Malaya was the British. And there are also really strong trade as well as cultural links with South Asia, especially the emergence of 
first Buddhism and then Islam entering through Indonesia into what what is now Indonesia and what is now Malaysia. And so you have this region that's always been very much at the crossroads of the world. And Malaysia in many ways still maintains that character. So the population is demographically mixed. It's um, now about 60%-ish Malay, maybe a little bit higher than that now. Ethnic Malays who are the dominant ethnic group also of Indonesia, the Philippines, and Brunei. There are smaller um, indigenous groups called Orang Asli or Orang Asal. There's about, right now, about a third of the population, but it used to be about a half, half the population who are ethnic Chinese. And then also um, a substantial minority. Right now, I think the population is something like 12%. I might be off on that percentage of ethnic Indians. And so there's a lot of inherent diversity. Malays, the ethnic Malay population, is constitutionally required to be and remain Muslim. Uh, the Chinese and Indian population is much more mixed. So there is freedom of religion for non-Muslims in Malaysia. And there's um, about like 15% overall are Christian, higher in uh, East Malaysia, which is the two states of Malaya, Malaysia on the island of Borneo across the South China Sea. Others are Hindu or Buddhist or are other religions. And so the country is strategically located. The Straits of Malaya, for instance, has been a major trade route, again, for generations upon generations. Now it's especially significant in terms of world trade as well, um, especially for things like oil. So Malaysia is a petroleum exporter as well as uh, natural gas, but it's also a, a hot zone for piracy, for the conflicts with China and the South China Sea. Malaysia is one of the claimants there. It's, it's just a really geopolitically important, however small, country. Thank you for that overview about um, Malaysia's positionality in the region. So moving on to a brief background on government, could you give us a background on the framework and structure of Malaysia's government? Sure. Malaysia, again, had been a British colony and achieved its independence uh, in 1957. And then East Malaysia, those two states on Borneo, joined along with Singapore in 1963. Uh, Singapore left two years later, but Sabah and Sarawak, those two states, remained. So um, we have now Malaysia as in comprising 13 states, including these two uh, in, on Borneo. It's uh, a highly centralized federation. So unlike, for instance, the United States, the state governments have very little independent fiscal authority or um, share of revenues, but they do have some important power. Um, Malaysia is a constitutional monarchy. Each of nine of those states have a hereditary monarch. These are the traditional Malay sultans of those states. The monarchs together rotate the kingship. So there is one Yang de Pertuanagong, the king of Malaysia, every five years from amongst their ranks. But the king has mostly ceremonial authority as in other constitutional monarchies. In terms of the federal government, the central government, Malaysia until 2018 had only had one regime, one coalition in power. That coalition had itself changed. So it's called the alliance from shortly before independence. It started winning at the municipal level until 1969. They were called the alliance. Then there was a period of emergency rule after uh, ethnic riots, after the Alliance was about to lose an election, and that was suspended in 1969 to 71. And now, after that, the regime reconstituted as the Barisan Nasional, the National Front. So it was an expanded coalition 
still including the three parties that had comprised the alliance, but also other parties. In terms of that coalition itself, the alliance and then BN, the three core parties, the only three in the alliance and the core three in the BN, which are now back in government as what's now called the Prikata Nacional, the National Alliance, are communal parties. They're race-based parties. So one is for Malays, one is for Chinese, one is for Indians. The dominant party is the Malay component, which is called the United Malays National Organization, or AMNO. The other two are the Malaysian Chinese Association and the Malaysian Indian Congress. Right now, in the new government, the key party that has joined with what's now back to the alliance parties of the BN, those three core parties, is called PAS, the Pan-Malaysian Islamic Party which is strongest, especially on the East Coast. The Challenger Coalition, which had taken over in 2018, has gone through multiple iterations and multiple different names with shifting composition. But as that federal government, it was called Pakatan Harapan, the Alliance of Hope. And it comprised mostly non-communal parties. That was the big innovation apart from one, which was a splinter party from UMNO, that Mo party, led by the former BN Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed. That party has now fractured. Most of it has joined with this new Prikatan Nacional governing coalition. Part of it remains what's now the opposition, the Pakatan. Um, but that coalition includes several different parties with mostly, it, it developed initially around a social justice orientation, including both Islamist and secular parties, and parties with differing predominant ethnic bases, but was ideologically non-communal. Okay, so continuing on this theme of politics, but moving on to talk more about recent political events, um, the 2018 general election in Malaysia was considered to be a pretty historical moment for the country. So can you tell us about the outcome of that election and why it was so significant? So the 2018 election was significant mostly because Malaysia has been, still is in my view, what's classified in political science as a competitive electoral authoritarian or just competitive authoritarian regime. Competitive authoritarian regimes are those in which we have some of the trappings of democracy, but other trappings of authoritarianism. So the playing field for challenger parties is very much skewed. Elections are less than fully free and fair, and there may be other advantages that keep the dominant party in power. That dominant party in Malaysia has been a coalition, but with one dominant party within that coalition, UMNO, and had become increasingly corrupt over the years and just increasingly entrenched, largely by dint of that corruption, by finding and utilizing economic advantages. So for a challenger party or coalition to overturn that entrenched advantage is difficult and noteworthy. So the fact that that happened in 2018 really mattered. There had been some precursors. The prior two elections in 2008 and 2013, this alliance had already made real headway. So had taken over more state-level governments, had denied the BN its two-thirds majority in parliament, which meant that the BN could not simply change the constitution at will, but still had not managed to uh, take over parliament. They had won a majority of the popular vote in 2013, but but because of uh, skewed districting, uh, was unable to gain parliament with that. So the simple fact of a change in power is notable in an electoral authoritarian regime. And that coalition that came to power promised um, a whole raft of reforms, 
So some that it would do in its first three months, the first hundred days, and others that it would do over its first five-year term around things like reducing corruption, removing barriers on civil liberties, uh, reforming different institutional structures. And so there were a lot of these changes that Pakatan, this coalition proposed, that would in many ways really open up the political system. It didn't last. I mean, there are, there are all sorts of challenges that such a coalition faces, but at least some of the reforms that they proposed have gone through. So for instance, important um, ones are things like reducing the voting age from 21 to 18. So that was Malaysia's first ever bipartisan constitutional amendment. There are some efforts to clean up corruption that looked really promising. It's not clear what will happen with some of those now that there's a new coalition in power. But other changes like introducing select committees in parliament, which allow actual discussion and debate in parliament, those changes might stick and could really help to open up the policy process a bit in important ways. Okay, so um, just a few months ago in February 2020, um, Malaysia saw a political crisis and a significant turnover in power. Can you walk us through the events that occurred at the end of February? I can try, but it was a ridiculously complex set of events. The, the basic idea of it, though, is that two of the parties that made up Pakatan Harapan fractured, they split. One of them had been on the brink of falling apart for actually years now. Um, but had really reached a crisis point in late 2019. And that's the the People's Justice Party, which is the party of Anwar Ibrahim, who had been the leader of this reformist movement called Reformasi, or Reformation, in 1998-1999, the wake of the Asian financial crisis, that really initially started to try to build an opposition coalition that could oust the BN. So they failed initially, and Anwar has spent a significant proportion of the intervening years in in jail or in prison. But Anwar himself had been deputy prime minister under Mahathir for UMNO, the BN, but he had been a youth leader before that point. He had been an opposition activist as this nonpartisan leader prior to that time in the late 60s, early 70s, and then joined the BN with Mahathir in the early 1980s. So he had been an up-and-coming political leader. He took on Mahathir once he was ousted after the financial crisis. So jump, jump ahead to um, 2018. So Anwar's wife is the head of the party that the two of them had set up back in 1998-1999. That party is in coalition with the Democratic Action Party and the party that's called Party Amananagar, the um, National Mandate Party, which was a splinter party from PAS, the Pan-Malaysian Islamic Party that I mentioned earlier. And this coalition has won the election in 2018, but a fourth party joined in 2018 that had not previously been part of the coalition. They joined actually short, relatively shortly before the election. That party is called Versatu or, or PPBM, the Malaysian United Indigenous Party, which Mahathir heads. So this party is really a splinter party from UMNO. And unlike these other parties, Ka'adilan, Anwar's party, the DAP, the Democratic Action Party, um, and Amana, this fairly progressive Islamist party, Bursatu is a Malay communal party. And it's Mahathir who is accepted as the one person who can really tilt the balance, win over especially rural Malay votes because of his prior record as an extremely successful developmentalist prime minister, and really help secure a win for this upstart coalition, Pakatan Harapan. The problem is that this introduces really two main power centers within the coalition. One centers around Anwar, one centers around Mahathir, and they're in different parties. 
Within Anmar's party, meanwhile, is another potential power centered around this guy, Osman Ali, who Mahathir is widely thought to favor. So the reason I mentioned the earlier struggles of 1999 is that if you recall, Anwar had been Mahathir's deputy prime minister. Mahathir sacked him as being, well, for various official reasons, but most assumed it was really because he was an upstart that he seemed to be trying to oust Mahathir and take over before his turn came around naturally. And so there had already been, you know, some real suspicion that this relationship would not be also easy and that the plan as of the elections that Mahathir would be prime minister for about two years and then hand over the reins to Anwar, that that might not work out so well. The two years was approaching, not limit. And Mahathir uh, really was showing no signs of moving out of the way. Anwar had recently agreed to hold off in trying to take over as prime minister. But in the meantime, there was this other potential prime minister in Osman. And so that was really what started to fragment first Anwar's own party. There were these two camps around himself and Osman, and really a strong sense that this party might not hold together. And then there's also just the, the larger Anwar versus Mahathir question. And indeed, Mahathir's party less expectedly fractured as well. And so in the waning days of February, the early days of March 2020, in a series of just really inscrutable and bizarre moves, some of them happening in this Sheraton Hotel, a camp from within Pakatan tried to get Mahathir to join them in joining with Amno and Pas in forming a rival coalition. Mahathir did not agree with this plan, even though Many others in the coalition initially thought he was behind it, that this was all about getting rid of Anwar. In a really convoluted sequence of events, the king, again, constitutional monarch, who traditionally does not have a lot of authority, called in all of the sitting members of parliament individually to find out who they backed and ended up deciding that Mohidin Yassin, who had been the previous deputy prime minister under the Barsa National government before 2018, and then had been the home minister under the Pakatan Harapan government from Mahathir's party, that he should be prime minister under this new coalition that he could claim to lead. It's a very shaky coalition. It is not clear that as of the time that the king made that decision, they technically had a firm majority of support. And it's still not clear that they really have more than maybe a one to two seat majority now at best. But basically, now Mohidin is prime minister. There is a coalition, again, called Furikatan Nacional, which includes most of Mahathir's party, Bursatu, but not Mahathir or a collection of his loyalists. Uh, part of Anwar's party, Kaadilan, which has broken off and joined with that main part of Bursatu. Amno, MCA, and MIC, that's the BN as well as PAS, which is the Islamic party, and then also coalitions of parties from Sabah and Sarawak from East Malaysia. It is a very shaky coalition. The only thing that right now holds it together is the desire to control the government. Muhyiddin, the prime minister, prorogued parliament. He, rather than have parliament sit, as was planned in early March, he delayed the start of parliament to mid-May. That sitting has now been declared to be a one-day sitting on, I believe, May 18th. And all of this is, of course, at a moment of massive global political and economic crisis. So it's really not a great time to have a shaky government that has not actually sat. But that's where we are in Malaysia now. So, so I guess in thinking about these 
you know, dynamic events that you just described, what do you think these changes really mean for the future of Malaysia? It's really hard to say. So on the one hand, none of this bodes especially well from Malaysia's odds of pulling through this pandemic and economic crisis as easily as possible. So political uncertainty is never a great thing for, for instance, attracting investment, and Malaysia will need all the investment it can get. In addition, the pandemic itself arguably worsened in part because of this political paralysis at the at a moment of crisis. So at the same time, this isn't Mohidin's fault, it's just a really terrible coincidence. At the very same time that the government was imploding, a massive tablih, uh, Islamist missionary group gathering was happening, about 15,000 people in Malaysia the last couple of days of February, the first day of March. And that became the event that really seemed to have tipped off a major increase in COVID-19 cases in Malaysia and indeed across the region, since many had traveled to Malaysia for this event. And so Malaysia went from about 25 cases, nearly all of them discharged, to thousands in very short order. And part of what allowed the spread was that the government, which again, for the first time ever, now included the Malaysian Islamic Party and was formed around this idea of Malay unity with UMNO and PAS, these two Malay-based, Muslim-based parties at the center of it. They most likely didn't want to be the first to close mosques in Malaysia's history, but that really needed to have happened sooner. So you had one to two weeks after that gathering in which those individuals went back and went to Friday prayers, went to their mosques, helped to spread the virus further. Again, not out of ill will, but just because that's how viruses work. And so you had this really terrible political coincidence. You have increasing political uncertainty because this is not a stable government. Um, and so that won't help Malaysia recover quickly from this crisis. The government has managed to pass a, um, a couple of significant bailout packages. They have put in place a very strict movement control order. They are getting things under control. The transmission rates are definitely winning. So it's, it's not so dreadful as it could be, certainly. But it's just anything that decreases the chances of a coherent, credible response is just an unfortunate thing to have at this moment in time. Beyond this, it, it is certainly much more plausible now that this highly undemocratic change of government, uh, most will call it a parliamentary coup, some have argued that it's more of a palace coup because it was the king who actually named the prime minister, whatever we want to call it, it was a change of government, not by elections. This is a highly an undemocratic move, but by keeping a really shaky coalition now in power, it could usher in future changes of government through elections. So it could perhaps mean that we see ultimately a shift from electoral authoritarianism, which Pakatan Harapan, the coalition that ran in 2018, could have sustained with itself as, dom as dominant party. But it does suggest that, you know, we could see continuing change of power over the course of next subsequent elections. At the same time, it doesn't, none of this bodes really well for civil liberties, just because the premise of this new government, if there is one, is Malay unity, Malay Muslim rights. There's no, they don't have a stated agenda or platform yet. So we're really just guessing based on demographics. But none of that bodes particularly well for the rights of non-Muslims or non-Malays or for civil liberties broadly in as much as the parties that are now back in power. So we're just in a position of real political uncertainty now in Malaysia, but it's not, this is not a progressive coalition in political terms. and 
it's likely to be just beset by crisis, partly from the nature of its formation and just the, its own inherent instability, and partly just because all governments are now in a state of crisis, just given the state of global affairs. Thank you so much for your insights. I think it'll be interesting to see how, in this post-pandemic world, what will happen to the economies that have been affected, and what Malaysia will do to hope, hopefully find a more stable coalition and hopefully find more stability. But it'll definitely be um, a series of interesting events to watch. So to conclude our episode, we like yes. to ask <laughs> we like to ask all of our uh, speakers a fun question. So our fun question for you today: um, Could you tell us about your first time in Malaysia? Sure. So my very first time in Malaysia was not very eventful. I was living in Singapore, and I took public bus to Johor Bahru, just across the causeway, across the bridge from Singapore. Um, mostly, to be honest, to get chewing gum. So. Um, <laughs> It was barred in Singapore, but you could get it in Malaysia. So we would joke that we were gum runners. Um, and then my next time, which was a little bit more substantial, was uh, taking again bus from Singapore up to Malacca, which is a city on the the west coast of Malaysia. That was a more substantial and probably academically credible journey than going to Johor to get gum. So there you have it. That's great. I I love that story. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think that's all of the questions that we have for you. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been such a pleasure hearing you talk about your work. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstitute.org/asiaunscripted, where you will find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. You can find US Asia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com/usai1979 on Twitter at US Asia Institute and on Instagram at us.asia.institute.